Well, I would like to thank you for coming um, as well, and thank you, Dr. Little, for the very kind introduction. I want to thank Carrie and Dr. Little for their tremendous hospitality um, in setting this up and taking care of me while I'm here. Um, certainly, this meal is uh, amazing, <clears throat> and if at the end of our time together you don't really care much for my comments, at least associate my name with the meal, because <laughs> then I know you'll think favorably of me. Um, I will just say at the beginning, I have about five hours worth of material to share with you in 45 minutes. Um, so we'll be you know, running through some things uh, relatively quickly. Hopefully we'll have time for a good conversation at the end. Um, I have no financial conflicts of interest. My comments are solely my own and do not necessarily represent the views of Mayo Clinic or any of its programs. I would um, like to acknowledge an incredible resource for those that are interested in the history of eugenics, the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory's image archive of the American eugenics movement, where I, a number of <clears throat> the uh, images in the first half of my presentation have come from. It's an incredible uh, resource. Um, so. A few years ago, the beginning of a new century, the beginning of a new millennium, uh, we were coming down to the very end of the race between Craig Vittner and the Human Genome Project to come up with an initial uh, breakdown of the entire human genome. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, excitement, publications, a lot of hyperbole, and such things as, you know, calling the 21st century the century of the gene. The reality is, however, that this is the second century of the gene. And we need to always keep that in mind as we are examining new genetic technologies that are coming along. Um, and so I'm going to begin with a quote um, and have you think about where this may have originated. We are at a crucial period in the history of civilization. Signs of weakness, degeneracy, increase of vice and crime, inadequacy of power to perform physical and social duties abound at every hand. We cannot return to the ancient or Spartan method of weeding out incompetence by extinction. We cannot exterminate incompetence, but we can suppress their production. Out of this situation has arisen the science of eugenics. Eugenics is a new science which has as its object the betterment of the human race, and it embraces all forces and factors, whether hygienic, biological, social, or economic, which are or may be influential in the uplifting and improvement of humankind. This is the time to educate the young men and young women until they develop such a race patriotism and race loyalty that a young man or young woman who should discover themselves vitally defective even if the marriage day has been set, will turn aside and renounce their plans. They should, for the sake of their own offspring and for the upbuilding of the race, control their emotions and affections, heroically refraining from cursing the succeeding generation. This is the height of moral patriotism and eugenic loyalty which science aspires to generate within the breast of every man and woman boy and girl, and which, when we have achieved this ideal, the world will witness a heroism and patriotism far more genuine and more glorious than that which inspires the soldier of today to throw himself into the cannon's mouth. May I have an amen? All right. <clears throat> now, where do you think this was written? Well, Germany. Yeah, Hitler possibly, certainly. Uh, one might wonder about that. It actually was an American publication. Uh, this was, I think, the 17th printing or edition. Um, my version from which I got the quote um, dates to 1927. Uh, it was based upon materials from a Dr. Robert Leslie of the United States Public Health Service. Um, and it was not alone. It was one of many texts, <clears throat> all again proclaiming the glories of eugenics. This one even dating uh, earlier to 1914. The contemporary equivalent would be when uh, f uh, friends are getting married or something and you get them what to expect when you're expecting or uh, Wheat's you know, marriage book or something of the, uh, of the kind. 
this was the equivalent. And it was all strongly promoting eugenic ideals. And the first thing I want as a takeaway point for you to remember is that eugenics was not a creation of national socialist thinking. Um, actually, as I will show you later, the Germans were very dependent upon American scholars and thinkers for their programs. Um, that eugenics is an Anglo-American phenomenon. And so the responsibility really comes back here to us. Now, most of us don't know this. It's been expunged from our history texts, um, and which is very unfortunate. Um, but we'll go along with that. So what were the intellectual uh, roots of eugenics? Now, people immediately would jump to Charles Darwin uh, with The Origin of the Species by Natural Selection. Clearly, that was a very influential piece. And then you have to couple with that the findings in 1865 of Gregor Mendel in the actual mechanism of the transmission of um, various traits and tendencies. Um, actually, we can go back even further to the writings of Plato in the Republic with his vision of eugenically engineered society that would have the workers, the rulers, and the soldiers. Made a very nice beehive, um, essentially. Um, and the thoughts had existed, but now with the uh, uh, more specific knowledge uh, of how genetics worked, something could be done about that. But really, even before Darwin, the true intellectual soil for eugenics goes back to the late um, 18th century um, with the writings of uh, some of the Enlightenment speakers. Um, you will see, for instance, under the Condorcet's writings, the claim that the perfectibility of man is absolutely indefinite. From Lemaitre's book entitled Man a Machine, we go from this uh, noble view of man's um, ability to create the perfect future to a dramatic reductionism, where he claimed that men are at bottom only animals and perpendicularly crawling machines. But you see, that's a very important thought because of the malleability of human beings. And then you throw on top of that probably one of the most important works, Malthus's essay on the principle of population. For even Darwin acknowledges that it was Malthus' writings that helped to stimulate him with the idea of um, the, the survival of the fittest kind of, of a thought. Um, a few years later, though, it was a cousin of uh, Darwin, um, Francis Galton, um, who gave this idea a language. Um, first, in a work, Hereditary Genius, he talked about the fact that it should be possible to improve uh, human populations through genetic means. And then in a second work from, 19, from 1883, Inquiries into Human Faculty, he coined the term eugenics which he said was the study of the agencies under social control that improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations, either physically or mentally. Now, Galton's project was, in essence, to improve in humanity three parameters, health, intelligence, and moral character. And he brought these together into a single, what he believed, quantifiable term, worth. We're going to judge the worth of our fellow human beings. And <clears throat> he was concerned that what we were seeing in, in society at the time was not natural eugenics, not a movement toward improving the human race, but rather because society um, was increasing lifespans, um, allowing more individuals to live to reproductive age that we were actually propagating the unfit. Um, and he called this trend dysgenics. Um, he articulated this in Macmillan's magazine at the uh, era at the end of um, the Civil War in our timing. One of the effects of civilization is to diminish the, diminish the vigor of the application of the law of natural selection. It preserves weekly lives that would have perished in more barbarous lands. The result is that the more talented were choosing to have fewer children, but the less talented were populating like bunnies. And the chief 
culprits of this dysgenic trend were Christianity with its ridiculous notions of compassion and the contention that all human beings are equal before and equally loved by God and modern medicine, which was making enough progress at that time to be keeping people alive longer. So the solution to this dysgenesis was a two-pronged program. First, there was the positive eugenics half, which would entail strategies to get the desirables to increase their fertility and reproduction. And so you would establish eugenic societies that would educate, collect pedigrees of worthy families to serve as examples, to provide financial assistance for these folks to have children, and to make the desirables clearly aware that it was their ethical duty to have more children. So in essence, positive eugenics involved educate, indoctrinate, identify, and assist. Then there is the other prong, the negative eugenics, which would involve discouraging or preventing the undesirables from reproducing. Now, because the undesirables were viewed as of low intelligence and low moral character, he did not believe that educational means and so on would be sufficient to keep them from reproducing, and therefore, quote, stern compulsion ought to be exerted to prevent the free propagation of the stock of those who are seriously afflicted by lunacy, feeble-mindedness, habitual criminality, and pauperism. Now, as we shall see, that stern compulsion expressed itself in forced sterilization policies. <clears throat> now, it's interesting to note that at the time the Galton was conceiving of these things, there were American projects that, not calling it eugenics necessarily, were already beginning to have the same thought. And we can look to the Oneida colony as an example of that. Um, they claimed that between 1869 and 1879, they had produced 58 stirpicults, which is another way of saying children, but genetically desirable children, um, <clears throat> who then... Um, could be tested, and they invited people in to examine their children uh, to confirm their intelligence, their physical prowess, and other characteristics. Now, of course, we should be asking certain questions as you go along in this way and say, don't you think that perhaps children being raised in a colony of uh, utopians uh, might have some cultural influences on their behavior and their education and things of that nature. So, but anyway, as we shall see, nurture versus nature was highly confused in the early years of eugenics. Moving a little bit forward to the beginning of the 20th century, we had the creation of the eugenics record office in Cold Spring Harbor, which was led by Charles Davenport. His uh, primary partner in crime uh, was, oh my goodness, I don't know why we're not pulling up those images, but uh, um, Dr. Harry Laughlin, who is uh, the ERO's superintendent, and Laughlin's job was to create model sterilization legislation uh, and other forms of model legislation. His Model Sterilization Act of 1926 was taken paragraph by paragraph almost verbatim in the 1933 German Erbsgesundheitsrecht, uh, which was the um, new German regime's eugenics uh, forced sterilization policy. Um, to acknowledge their dependence upon uh, these Yankees' contributions, the University of Heidelberg um, gave uh, Mr. Laughlin an honorary doctorate. The third member of the triumvirate was Henry Herbert Goddard, who was the originator of IQ testing in the United States, which originated for purely eugenic purposes. And it's interesting to go back and look at some of the uh, newspapers and, and publications at the time. One of the jobs of eugenics was to then grade individuals. Um, we grew up using these terms as typical words of aspersion, but these were actual criteria uh, each indicating a certain level of mental proficiency or disability, if you want to look at it, down uh, the stairs. Um, so, I mean, yes, a low-grade medium and a high-grade imbecile sounds like the beginning of a joke. But um, this was very serious um, for the folks at the time. 
Goddard also wrote one of the seminal treatises uh, promoting eugenics, um, The Kalakak Family. And <clears throat> the story goes, Goddard and his team were um, claiming that they had followed the family tree of this group of folks called the Kalakaks. Now, Kalakak was a pseudonym. Um, you Greek scholars would know that Kalos is beautiful and Kakos is bad. And so this is the story of good and evil in one family. And as the legend goes, in, 1970, or in 1776, forgive me, Martin Kalakak fathered a bastard child with a feeble-minded tavern witch. And from that very dysgenic liaison, they attract 480 descendants, of which 143 were found to be retarded. 36 had also continued to have illegitimate children. 33 were sexual deviants, 24 alcoholics, 3 were epileptics. It's very interesting that the original eugenics was very fixated on epilepsy. Um, 82 died in infancy, and 3 were just garden variety criminals. Now, <clears throat> Martin reformed and decided to settle down, and he married a good, respectable girl of good family. And there were 496 descendants, of only three could be described as degenerates. And all the other legitimate children married well and were upstanding leaders in their communities. They were teachers and lawyers and doctors and pastors and, and good businessmen and so on. Now, the lesson that, this, that the book wanted to purport was that $150 sterilization, now we're talking $1912 at that point, would have prevented through the dysgenic line over $2 million in state aid and relief necessary to care for those people. Now what is not discussed is what would have been the cost to the community of preventing the appropriate liaison from taking place. I'm sure they were only wanting to sterilize the tavern witch. But, but, but that does beg a question, because obviously Martin's genes don't matter a whit in the overall equation. And I think if you ever wanted to make an argument, a sociological argument for the importance of nurture over nature, this would be the book to do it. But it was sold as completely the opposite. But that was the science, the agreed-upon um, consensus view of the day. And then we see other prominent Americans, um, Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, uh, stating in 1913, someday we will realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty of the good citizen of the right type, is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world, and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type. I wish very much that the wrong people could be prevented entirely from breeding. Criminals should be sterilized and feeble-minded persons forbidden to leave offspring behind them. The emphasis should be laid on getting desirable people to breed. Roosevelt, as we know, was a strong progressive. Um, ultimately, in these terms of issues, he was no different than Woodrow Wilson, though Wilson was probably a bit more overt in his racism. But they were both sharing in this progressive view of <clears throat> uh, deification of the technocratic state um, to which we all must swear allegiance. This Sunday, we will mark, mourn perhaps, the 100th anniversary of the founding of Planned Parenthood, October 16, 1916. Um, Margaret Sanger was a very radical eugenicist. She was a Rockefeller gran uh, grantee. Uh, she was fiercely opposed to charity, advocating that the cold and the hungry should be left uh, without help so that they could be weeded out. She referred to the lower classes, classes as human waste and weeks to be exterminated. She wrote in a book uh, or an article, Women in the New Race, the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. And this uh, quote on the slide is from the pivot of civilization. This degeneration has already begun. Eugenists uh, demonstrate that two-thirds of our manhood and military age are physically too unfit to shoulder a rifle, that the feeble-minded, the syphilitic, the irresponsible, the defective breed unhindered, that society at large is breeding an ever-increasing army of undersized, stunted, and dehumanized slaves, 
that the vicious cycle of mental and physical defect, delinquency and beggary, is encouraged by the unseen and unthinking sentimentality of our age to populate asylum, hospital, and prison. The academy was also taken um, by eugenics beliefs. The presidents of Harvard and Yale were prominent eugenicists. Um, Irving Fisher stated in um, the Second National Congress on Race Betterment, quote, gentlemen and ladies, you have not any idea unless you have studied this subject mathematically how rapidly we could exterminate this contamination if we really got to it and how rapidly the contamination goes on if we do not get at it. Um, our major philanthropic organizations, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Kellogg, were all uh, in their various ways supporting major eugenic projects. Speaking of academics, it's very interesting that at the end of World War II, um, with the bad press that the Third Reich had received, um, eugenics was renamed medical genetics. And uh, so that's where it went. But your departments of medical genetics, if you've had an institution that's been around long enough, probably derive from the Department of Eugenics uh, at the time. The first iteration of People magazine was published by the American Eugenics Society. Some would say that the current iteration of uh, People magazine might be, well, I don't know if I'd call it eugenic, perhaps a dysgenic magazine, but um, uh, growing up on the farm, being in 4-H, you always look forward to you know, going to uh, the fair to demonstrate your livestock and your vegetables and other projects. Back in the 30s, 20s, 30s, even in the 40s, County and state fairs all had their eugenic health exhibits uh, where you would see signs like this. Some people are born to be a burden on the rest. Every 15 seconds, $100 of your money goes to the care of persons with bad heredity. Every 16 seconds, a person is born in the United States, but only every seven and a half minutes, a high-grade person is born in the U.S. And instead of trotting out your sheep and your cows and, and your other livestock, you'd dress up and trot out your kids. And they would have essentially fittest family contests in which the family would be picked that served as the best eugenic ideal in the local community. And then you and your folks would receive this medal which said, I have a goodly heritage. Mm -hmm. The arts, of course, uh, were involved. Um, there was a movie entitled The Black Stork. It was based on a Chicago situation in which Dr. Hazelden um, let's die a, um, a child with uh, birth defects um, belonging to Anna Bollinger. Um, a friend of Hazelton provided the money and the means to make the movie of which he himself chose to star in it. And the story goes that um, the, the Miss Hazelton had this defective child and he wanted to heroically prevent the child from being kept alive essentially promoting a form of, um, of uh, infanticide. He was soundly criticized by the local physicians who wanted to adhere to these ancient Hippocratic ideals. And uh, so the, um, the baby in the movie um, actually was kept alive. And they followed the, the story, the history of this unfortunate individual who grew up and had his disabilities and became a constant target of derision and bullying and so on by his peers to the point that he grew up in his teen years in such anguish and being rejected that he came in and he chose the fuddy-duddy old uh, physicians for making him live um, and endure this. Now, <clears throat> Hollywood then is now is really not known for its subtlety when it wants to uh, engage in propaganda. Um, the Immigration Act of 1924 was a eugenics form of legislation that sought to limit the influx from southern and eastern Europe, uh, for these folks were biologically inferior and jeopardized the blood of the nation. Secretary of Labor James Davis said America has always prided itself up, uh, upon having for its basic stock the no so-called Nordic race. We should ban from our shores all races who are physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually undesirable and who constitute a menace to our civilization. And it basically took until 1965 to 
uh, reverse um, many of these acts. Indiana became the first state in the United States in 1907 to pass forced sterilization legislation. By the 1930s, 35 states had laws for forcible sterilization of individuals judged to be defective. By 1930, more than 60,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized. And um, you can see a, a map uh, from around 1935 of the states um, in the crosshatching that had uh, legislation um, and others that were considering it. Minnesota was one of those states. And just to share with you um, some of the enthusiastic supporters uh, included Dr. Charlie, who said, I think this bill is a good one and if carried out under full restriction will greatly reduce in the future the number of our mentally unfit citizens. And in a speech uh, given at the opening of Northwestern University's uh, medical school, um, medicine has succeeded in upsetting the law on which evolution has depended for the progress of living creatures. We must, we must not close our eyes to the evil of protecting and perpetuating the physically and mentally unfit. And we must, in medicine, lead the world in addressing this situation. Now, I share this quote with you not to, you know, thumb my nose at, at my forebears at Mayo. These were otherwise brilliant men who developed a medical system that still, I think, is without peer. Um, and did a tremendous amount for the advancement of surgical technique and sciences. I share this with you to illustrate how wrong our leaders can be on some of these issues. That settled science isn't always as settled as we claim and that physicians don't tend to make very good social engineers. Um, there was the case, and I'm not sure why the images are not showing up. I apologize for that. Um, the case that went before the United Supreme, Supreme Court of Buck versus Bell. Um, you may be very familiar with this. Uh, Carrie Buck, an 18-year-old involuntary resident of the Virginia State Colony of Epileptics and Fetal-Minded, was chosen to be the first person for forced sterilization, claiming that she was a daughter of a feeble-minded mother in the same institution and the mother of an illegitimate feeble-minded child. The court ruled eight to one uh, to support the legislation and the opinion. One of the shortest, actually, in Supreme Court history was written by the famed jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes, in which he stated that we have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who'd already sapped the strength of the state for their lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. The only problem was is that Carrie Buck wasn't an imbecile. She later went on and was successful at college-level courses and the real issue was that the only reason she became pregnant and had an illegitimate child was that she was raped by her cousin who received no penalty for his action. And then to this audience, I particularly want to remind us of the role that um, uh, institutional religion had played in perpetuating the eugenic ideal. Christine Rosen has written a fascinating book on this topic called Preaching Eugenics, and I highly recommend it to you. But just some examples. In 18, or 1912, the very Reverend Walter Sumner refused to marry individuals who did not present proof of a physician's inspection and certification that both members of the couple were normal physically and mentally and have neither an incurable nor communicable disease. We will make the marriage certificate issued by the cathedral stand from this time on for absolute purity. We seek to protect the integrity, sanctity, and future health of the home by joining in matrimony only those who are fit to propagate a normal race. And we see leaders in other mainstream denominations, um, the Presbyterian Church in the USA, um, 
talking about their uh, participation in fostering wholesome eugenics. The Baptist, I'm assuming this is the American Baptist Convention, not the Southern Baptist Convention, So the Baptists should be the pioneers of eugenics as they have been in other movements for social reform. And up in uh, the Twin Cities, the Reverend Osgood saying, we are God-appointed guardians of the gate of new birth and we must keep our birthrights pure. A a very important um, influencer on this was Reverend Harry Fosdick. The Riverside Church, you recall the Rockefeller Foundation, which built Riverside, uh, were very strong eugenicists. Um, Fosdick was known for his war on Orthodox and Biblical Christianity. Uh, He was a member of the American Eugenics Society. But he said in the famous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Few matters are more pressingly important than the application to our social problems of such well-established information in the realm of eugenics. The AES also sponsored eugenic sermon contests. Uh, my favorite was this one um, from Reverend Charles Connolly of Rockford, Illinois, and his understanding of the Good Samaritan. Interesting in light of the, the picture that adorns us here. He said that if the uh, Good Samaritan lived now with what we know about eugenics, he would, number one, have provided better policing and lighting of the road, but most importantly, now with eugenics, he would know that his duty was to prevent those thieves from ever having been born in the first place. Well, moving into the current era, we thought, you know, at the end of World War II, the destruction of Nazi Germany, the story was over, and we would never see a statement like this again from Mein Kampf. Whoever is not bodily and spiritually healthy and worthy shall not have the right to pass on his suffering in the body of his children. And yet, just a few decades later, President of the AAAS, Bentley Glass, wrote in his presidential address from 1971, no parent will have the right to burden society with a malformed or mentally incompetent child. Twice Nobel recipient Linus Pauling was very concerned about the dysgenic trends that he saw um, going forward, in fact, he suggested that carriers, carriers of sickle cell anemia, these are the non-affected uh, clinically individuals but carry the gene, these carriers should be branded on their forehead to warn prospective mates of the genetic um, peril that lay therein. He also said that carriers of cystic fibrosis who have children add to the amount of human suffering and should feel guilty for their actions. Nobel laureate William Shockley, who contributed to the development of the transistor, wanted to propose that everyone with an IQ of less than 100 be offered a payment to be sterilized. Nobel laureate Joshua Lederberg at Stanford was more interested in using genetic engineering over traditional eugenic means. Then in 1978, we had the birth of Louise Brown, the first um, successful birth using in vitro fertilization technologies. The creator of IVF, um, and also a Nobel laureate, Robert G. Edwards, uh, was a very prominent uh, eugenicist. Um, In fact, he later even stated that uh, he was interested in developing IVF as a eugenic tool. Um, He said that uh, IVF was actually about more than infertility. I wanted to find out exactly who was in charge, whether it was God himself or whether it was the scientists in the laboratory. In his conclusion, it was us. In 99, he stated, soon it will be a sin for parents to have a child that carries the heavy burden of genetic disease. We are entering a world where we have to consider the quality of our children. And in 2005, at a conference on in vitro fertilization, he advocated the use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis on every embryo that was to be transferred uh, to a uterus and only allowing normal embryos, genetically normal embryos, to be implanted. As a social movement, we can look to Lee Yu of Singapore, um, who introduced tax rebates for children and a state-sponsored dating agency for college graduates to improve the quality of the race in Singapore. Um, I can confirm the dating agency really did exist because friends of mine 
physicians who grew up in Singapore were approached to, to, to participate in, in the program. We have China's one-child policy, um, which is ostensibly for population control. But the Chinese were very interested in eugenics. They even have a named eugenic law of 1994, in which uh, abortions would literally be physically forced on women um, whose uh, mate or from her own family were thought to carry uh, genetic disease. Um, and before she passed away, Dorothy Wirtz did a worldwide survey of genetics counselors. Now, in, in genetics, we, in the United States, in Canada, and Britain, uh, try to uphold what's called the non-directiveness policy, that when you engage in genetics counseling, you provide the objective information. Do you have the gene? Do you not have the gene? Or do you have a likelihood of having the gene? And what are the consequences of that? How might it express itself? What's the wide variety of phenotypic expression? Uh, which may accompany some genes. And yet you can see in much of the rest of the world, uh, they do not adhere to this. They believe it is their role to tell people you should not have children, period. Um, in, 90, or in 2002, Godfredson tried to do an analysis that if we could eugenically increase the average IQ in the population by one or two points. Look at all the potential benefits to the economy um, and in our society that would accrue from this. And again, what's notably absent is the consideration, well, what if there aren't jobs? What if the economy is horrible? You can have all sorts of qualified people with higher IQs and still not necessarily be able to accomplish the ends that are being promised. But this is the thought that, again, is still with us. And some of our leading bioethicists, Alan Buchanan, Dan Brock, Norm Daniels, who's a Rawlsian, um, and Dan Wickler, in their book, From Chance to Choice, have uh, resurrected the old German terminology of the Lebenswertenleben, the lives unworthy of living, which was used to justify the writings of Binding and Hoest in 1920 for state-sponsored euthanasia. And they are against the non-directiveness um, uh, policy in genetics counseling. Our analysis shows that in cases of both wrongful life and wrongful disability, the non-directiveness norm is morally problematic. Just as non-directiveness about those cases of child abuse and neglect would be indefensible, so too is non-directiveness about genetic transmission of comparable harmful conditions. Non-directiveness is indefensible as an inflexible and systematic norm to guide all genetic counseling. Now to give you a little bit more insight into the technocratic mindset of these individuals, I'll take you to a speech that Dan Brock gave <clears throat> at the University of Rhode Island in which he stated, our notion of how good a person's life is is not fully determined by their own subjective self-assessment. It's nice to know that you don't know if you have a good life or not, but thank goodness we have Dr. Brock to inform us uh, of that state. And he said, preventing a severe disability is not for the sake of the child who will have it, rather it is for the sake of less suffering and loss of opportunity in the world at large. America's bioethicist, Art Kaplan, can't seem to think that there's anything wrong with eugenics. He said, it is difficult to argue in a world which tolerates the creation of homogeneity through the parental selection of schools, music lessons, religious training, or summer camps that only environmentally engineered homogeneity is morally licit. No moral principle seems to provide sufficient reason to condemn individual eugenic goals. Now, while individual decisions can have negative collective consequences, it's not clear that it is any less ethical to allow the selection of genetic traits than it is to permit them to teach their children the values of a particular religion. Good case for your critical thinking class, Larry. Um, <clears throat> so this is clearly a category mistake of you know, the most blatant kind. 
But that this was even proposed as an academically legitimate expression of thought shows the degree to which the academy is really in trouble um, in our country. And then a fellow theologian, Ron Cole Turner, in his book uh, Beyond Cloning, he's also a transhumanist, uh, and I'll just go to the blue portion. Will nature transcend itself again via technology and give God a transhuman species more intelligent, more spiritual, more loving, more creative, poetic, musical, more adept at praise, more generous, more able to glorify and enjoy God? Could our technology be the midwife of divine creativity, God's hands in our clay? I'll respond to that at the very end. <clears throat> And a current Supreme Court justice um, has uh, stated that uh, she was excited about Roe versus Wade uh, because we would see a restriction in the growth of populations that we don't want to have too many of. Dr. Julian Savalesco at Oxford University has uh, proposed uh, his principle of procreative beneficence why we should select the best children. The parents have an obligation to use reprogenetic technologies to select disease-free children, children with superior desired traits, even if that selection leads to some degree of social inequality. Now, I just want to mention that Suvalesco, also a transhumanist, has no regard for uh, the preborn and is very much against the conscience rights among healthcare professionals. He instead favors something he calls moral reengineering, so that people will be sure to have the right type of thinking on these critical social issues. One of the results of um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and uh, in vitro fertilization is the creation of savior siblings. Many of you may have read Jody Picot's book or saw the movie based on that book. Um, her sister's keeper, her sister's keeper, um, is based upon the Nash's case in essence. Um, Molly Nash had a congenital bone marrow failure sim, uh, 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 syndrome called Fanconi's anemia. And the best transplants in diseases like this are related transplants, uh, less chance of rejection and so on. So what the Nashes did is that they conceived of 30 embryos by in vitro fertilization and they tested them. But not only were they selecting out the embryos so that they didn't have the Fanconi's gene, but they were also selecting those who would be a perfect HLA match. And even if they didn't have the Fanconi's gene but weren't an HLA match, those embryos were discarded as well. And there were four left singlet implantations, and finally her brother Adam was born, who served as Molly's um, stem cell donor. Now this is a very important but very disturbing case because medicine um, has now basically agreed with the idea that people should be allowed to exist solely for their genetic utility. That's what this establishes. Um, if we look at how the American public is viewing this, there's been a recent Pew study, which I think is showing a little bit more caution, but in 2004, the Genetics and Public Policy Center at Johns Hopkins uh, surveyed whether uh, PGD should be approved for various purposes to exclude for a potentially lethal uh, disease to serve as an HLA match. Notice the large number of people that approve of that selection. For preventing adult onset disease, 40% for just simple sex selection, we'll come back to that, and even a third were supporting the selection of desirable traits, not disease situations, but for greater intelligence, greater strength, and those issues. And this leads to the thought that, well, we're not going to have that oppressive eugenics of the past, the forced sterilizations and so on. What we're going to have is friendly eugenics. We'll call it laissez-faire eugenics, the eugenics of the marketplace. We'll just let parents choose, and if everyone's choosing to their own thing, what, what could possibly go wrong? 
So that's that's basic idea. Well, let's look at sex selection. You can go online and you can go to the prenatal genetic center, you can go to pink or blue, you can go to easy DNA, and you can test non-invasively uh, for the gender of your child. Um, and of course, you can abort if it's not the right gender. Um, and this has now been developed down to the point where a blood test, maternal blood test, is able to detect the uh, fetal um, DNA uh, as early as six weeks. So the woman barely has missed her first period and knows that she may be pregnant and we're able to determine the gender of the child. The result of this, however, on a worldwide phenomenon has been gender side. A new report from the Population Research Institute that I just uh, came across last week um, says that since um, 2000, there have been 24,561,345 girls boarded specifically for their gender around the world. That accounts to around 1.6 million per year and 4,500 a day. The highest rates are in India, where they have now been left with a 112 to a 100 male to female ratio, China 115 to 100, and Pakistan 109 to 100. We've gone beyond just sex uh, um, determination in our peripheral blood testing. Uh, we now have um, non-invasive tests detecting for the trisomies. Trisomy 21 is the uh, setup for Down syndrome. Uh, trisomy 18 for Edwards and trisomy 13 for Patows. Patows and Edwards are much more serious disabilities than Downs. Patows is almost uniformly lethal within the first few years. But the main use, those are extraordinarily rare conditions. Downs is not that uncommon. And there was a recent report last year of one of these cell-free peripheral blood analyses where there's been a very high degree of sensitivity and specificity, but there are still false positives. Um, and taking tests like this, the Brits have said that this new test could save the state thousands to millions of dollars if we eliminate all these Downs children. Um, moving on to some of the other problems with this genetic information is this profound genetic reductionism, that we are really nothing more than our uh, genetic constitution. Walter Gilbert, one of the founders of the Human Genome Project, said, knowing the complete human genome, we will know what it means to be human. Well, the consequence of that kind of thinking is illustrated in this cartoon, My Genome Made Me Do It, um, because everything comes down to our genes, including our behavioral predispositions. Um, in this election year, um, we can be comforted by articles like this. Our political orientation is genetically transmitted, and is there a liberal gene? Um, all I can say is, based upon the primary election results, we are in a dysgenic trend in our society. Um, <clears throat> but that aside, I actually like what Robert Proctor has stated. The, geno the genome is not the very essence of what it means to be human any more than sheet music is the essence of a concert performance. That having been said, that doesn't prevent various entrepreneurs from trying to um, sell the eggs of uh, women. This was a scheme from the 2000s in which eggs were harvested from fashion models. Um, and then potentially sold. Now, I don't know if there was a disclaimer on there that said, yes, your child may be beautiful, but prone to fits of um, uh, distemper and narcissistic behavior and a variety of other things. Not to be outdone, in the era of the smartphone, uh, in England now, you can download an app and you can see on the subway forms uh, subway walls, find your perfect match. 
and you can get this app that will allow you to pick the type that you want and the sperm can be delivered by mail and you can take that to your local um, gynecologist and um, be inseminated that way to have the child of your dreams. Um, to this, Philip Kitcher, I think, wisely said, individual choices are not made in a social vacuum. Laissez-faire eugenics is in danger of retaining the most disturbing aspect of its historical predecessors, the tendency to try to transform the population in a particular direction, not to avoid suffering, but to reflect a set of social values. So then we, we come here to the, area, to the issue of genetic engineering. Now, up until recently, gene therapy was based upon delivering the desired gene into the body through a variety of vectors, and many of these were viruses. Um, there has been work to develop nanotools to do the same thing. But there have been issues with this. Um, the success of the implantation of the gene, the um, immunological acceptance of the vector and the foreign gene, and some have certainly died as a consequence of profound immunological reactions to the vector itself. Um, while there were some successful treatment of inherited bone marrow failure uh, disorders, um, the children who benefited from that temporarily had a significantly increase of developing acute leukemia down the road, thought also possibly related to the viral vector. And so recently the word on everyone's lips is CRISPR-Cas9, um, which is ushering in a, uh, a new era of genetic engineering that is safer, uh, that is more specific, um, and thus quite successful. Um, not only of you know, putting in a whole gene, but being able to specifically uh, make a, a change just in one amino acid uh, as necessary. So you can delete genes, you can insert genes, you can modify genes, and you can um, uh, be very sure that you're not necessarily interfering with other gene function which has been a concern with recombinant technology up to this point. And so uh, we, we have a tool which is really powerful and specific, sort of the, the dream of what the genetic engineer would want. The reality is, though, that this technology is best done ex vivo, meaning in the laboratory, and uh, what's easiest to manipulate at that point? Well, you can grow cultures, you know, from regular adult stem cells, develop a tissue, then put in the modified tissue cells. That's one thing. But it's a lot easier to create a new embryo and just with those few cells make the modification of the embryo. The consequence of that, however, is that um, you're doing a germline manipulation because necessarily at that early stage of development, the gametes are going to be affected. So every subsequent generation is going to be uh, affected by that modification. Now, when I was growing up, there was a fairly clear line of demarcation. We will allow genetic therapies for adults, but the line was to be drawn at germline manipulation. And you can see this expressed in the um, Convention on the Protection of Human Rights and Dignity uh, from the EU. Article 13, an intervention seeking to modify the human genome may only be undertaken for prevention, diagnostic, or therapeutic purposes, and only if its aim is not to introduce any modification in the genome of any descendants. Now, that inviolable line, which was very wise, is already going out the window. Um, we have had two reports from the Chinese, which you may have heard about, in which CRISPR technology was used to um, uh, create uh, embryos um, from, uh, of, of, of human beings uh, to undergo the modification. 
Now, the NIH is still holding the line, at least as long as Francis Collins is the chair, uh, stating that the NIH will not fund any use of gene editing technologies in human embryos. But the scientific community is chomping at the bit uh, to go beyond this. A, a panel of luminaries uh, came together, um, and while they have said at the moment, we discourage germline modification for clinical application in humans, they no longer are saying we absolutely categorically forbid or condemn germline modification. Um, they uh, submitted rules to ban gene editing embryos destined to become people. Well, okay, now we're sliding to the point, well, go ahead and modify the embryos. Just kill them. You know, don't, put, don't implant them. Um, in England, they this year have gone so far as to just simply say, yes, we're going to actually sponsor embryo manipulation, but still we're wanting to say that you have to kill them at the age of seven days. Now, that's very easy to ignore. As has already occurred, just last month, um, Dr. Zhuang and other researchers left the United States and went to Mexico, and they um, basically engineered embryos, implanted them, and led to a birth of a child that had uh, been genetically engineered at the embryonic stage. And their publication is soon to come out. So, <clears throat> when the specter makes this headline, eugenics is back, yep, boy howdy, it sure is. Um, and what should we take away from what I shared with you? Well, the eugenic impulse is still very much alive and well. I will say that science is a wonderful tool, but incomplete or bad science is a horrible way to form social policy. That we should bear, beware the coalition of science, institutional religion, and politics, for each will attempt to co-opt the other. Objectivity and a valuable system of checks and balances will be lost. That intelligence, scientific achievements, and clinical excellence are not guarantors of wisdom. Scientists make horrible social engineers, and those at the upper end of the bell curve aren't nearly as smart as we think we are. The laissez-faire eugenics will likely be just as problematic as the state-sponsored version. The governments will always view people as something to control. The state will always want to increase social productivity and minimize social costs. Anyone less than normal will always be viewed as a problem an impediment, a drain, despite all the electioneering rhetoric of inclusion to the contrary. Medicine must retain its practice and moral independence from the state. State control of medicine is a recipe for disaster, but unfortunately, medicine and science cannot be trusted on their own either to regulate and discipline themselves. Most importantly, medicine cannot fix humanity, and neither can the state. In responding to Ron Cole Turner's statement, no technology isn't going to offer to God a better human being. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And in Romans 8.29, we read, For those who he foreknew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the definition of human perfection. No science, no genetic manipulation, no transhumanist intervention is ever going to be able to achieve that. And we delude ourselves if we think otherwise. Humankind's utopian aspirations usually create more ill than good for any so-called new man will be driven by the old man's weaknesses and temptations. Collective centralized power cannot escape our sinful nature and motivations. And unfortunately, great harm can be done in the name of good and compassion. And so with that, I simply ask us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the 
wonder of your world and your creation. Thank you that you have given us the opportunity to see the genius in everything that you have done. We are sorry that our sin has blemished this in such terrible ways, but we are grateful that you have provided the means, the means for redemption, the means for salvation, and the hope of uh, a better future which you have made, not left to our own foolish and selfish desires. Please help us who are in the role of teachers, um, thinkers, healers, um, that we would be given a, trem- a great gift of your wisdom to know how to approach um, new technologies. Help us to use them for good and to be able to hold the line uh, preventing evil and give us the courage to be able to speak in the um, public forum in that regard. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.